Well, good morning again. And again, thank you, Donna, for coming and filling in on short notice. I know Angie appreciates that. But uh, I'm going to ask the rest of you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah 9, this morning we'll uh, camp out in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. And I will, we'll read that together in just a moment. Before the entire month of December, we have had the awesome privilege morning and night going to Isaiah chapter 9, camping out in verse number 6, and mining out of that text beautiful, awesome, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting truth. As we have, we have looked, we worked our way for the entire month through verse number 6, all alone by itself, looking at our Christ, the, the prophetic functional dis- description of it. This is Isaiah describing who the Savior would be some 700 years before the Savior came to be among us. This is a description of the functional identity of Jesus Christ. We, 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 we had the privilege of looking at the child that was born that was the son who was given. We had the privilege of looking at our wonderful counselor who is our Christ. We had the privilege of looking at our mighty God. We had the privilege of looking at our everlasting Father. And the last time we were together, we had the privilege of looking at the Prince of Peace. But now... Today, I want to go back to this chapter and I want to set the message of verse 6 in the greater context of chapter 9. Not only the greater context of chapter 9, but really the first few chapters of the book of Isaiah to help you get a feel for how Good and great this news is about a child that was born and a son that was given. If I were to hang a title over this section of Scripture, if I were to hang a title over this message as we look at this Scripture, it would simply be hope for the hopeless. Real hope for the really hopeless. I mean, we could add all kinds of adjectives to describe the enormousness of the hope that is contained in these verses this morning. It is a beautiful picture. Um, Verses 1 through 7 are a word from God that every believer needs to be reminded of. It's a word from God that every lost sinner needs to hear and receive. It's a very important word. Every day I meet Christians whose circumstances in this world around them seems to be sucking their hope out of their lives. 
And they get so caught up in the temporary things and the things of this life that they forget the eternal magnitude of what they have in Christ. This is a a truth that lost people have no clue about. And we of all people should rejoice in. My prayer this morning is that real hope will be ignited perhaps where no hope has ever existed before. My, my prayer this morning is that real hope will be renewed where it has once been bright but is starting to fade. Because we're, we're, we're taking our eyes off of our Christ and we're being consumed with our circumstances. Matter of fact, some of us could stand up and give more facts and figures on coronavirus than we can on Christ. Because we let everything around us overwhelm us. I pray this morning that the true Christian will be so encouraged with elementary truths that we know, because if we're saved, we know it, but that we'll be so encouraged with it that our hearts will burst forth with exceeding joy that can't be contained within us. My prayer this morning is also for the lost person, for that person that is damned in their sin. My prayer is that the sovereign Lord of all glory will shine his light into their hearts and they will behold the beauty of our Christ and so be forever eternally changed. Wow. Well, I can't cause that to happen, but God's word can. Because I'm nobody. Apart from the grace of Christ. But His Word is effective. And as we saw when we were in Isaiah 55, it will accomplish that purpose for which it is sent. Praise the Lord. So regardless of who you are this morning, whether you're a lost sinner, an apathetic believer, a discouraged believer, or a hot and on fire believer, I pray that the hope that is extended to the hopeless And Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, takes hold of your heart this morning in a a powerful way, in a way that will birth praise and adoration for our Lord Jesus Christ. So, take your copy of the Word of God, and let's read verses 1 through 7 this morning. But there will be no gloom... For her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice in you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over for his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Jehovah Sabbath, Yahweh Sabbath, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. <laughs> I don't know if anybody told you, but that'll preach. That's good truth in that particular passage. Two main things in this context. We see the problem of darkness, but then juxtaposed to it, we see the promise of a mighty deliverer. Wow. Now look, first of all, it is obvious there is a problem with darkness for the people in this passage. The text, the verse, verse 1 starts off, depending on your translation, I use ESV, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It talks about, or, or, it, or it uses the term, for some of you it uses the term, nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. It talks about those who, in verse Two walked in darkness. It talks about those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. There was darkness that the people whom he's talking to found themselves living in. And if they didn't perceive they were in darkness, yet they would. Because there was judgment that was coming. These people walked in a great Darkness And that darkness is really symbolic of the spiritual evil and depravity of their own hearts that brought them into a state of darkness. Matter of fact, let me, let me just read to you in, out of the first few chapters of the book of Isaiah some statements that God makes about His own people. And you will see why they, they, that they were walking in darkness. Okay? This, and, and these descriptors are not unique to Israel, I can assure you. But that is our context. If you go back to chapter 1, and I'm not waiting on you to turn back. You can go back and, and, and fact check me when you get home. Study your scriptures. Search, search them like the Bereans in Acts to see whether what I say is true or not. But you go over to chapter 1. He talks about them like this. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my does not know. My people do not understand. In verse 5 of that chapter, he says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot all the way to the, to the head. There is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed 
out or bound up or softened with oil. Over here, he talks to their leaders in verse 10 of that chapter. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He compares them to, to Sodom there. In verse 11, he says, what, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, or of your burnt offerings? And you go down to verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you, because even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, because your hands are full of blood. This is their condition. You, if, you, if you go over to chapter, the latter part of chapter 1, verse 21, he says this. He says how the faithful, he says, it refers to him sarcastically as the faithful city. He says how the faithful city has become a whore. She was, was full of justice, but no more. If you go over to... Chapter number five, before we, he, he makes statements like this. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, who are shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. He talks about them in chapter 6. We camped out under this verse. It's a very troubling verse where he says they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. Their hearts are dull and their ears are heavy. And then we come on over to chapter 9. And he's talking about how they were in darkness. They walked in darkness. And in the context of those first few chapters, because of the darkness they walked in prior to this snippet of hope that we see in chapter 9, he was going to bring them into judgment. God was going to hand them over to the hands of the Assyrians. Specifically, there was a leader by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III. You remember or you know of Adolf Hitler... Adolf Hitler got some of his inspiration from Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians. He studied, he was fascinated by some of their, their torture techniques and he implemented them and modified them in their persecution of the Jews. But God was raising up this nation to bring judgment upon his people. Because of the darkness that they walked in. And it was not going to be a pretty sight. Matter of fact, it was going to get so dark within the nation of Israel that they would think, especially at the height of the Babylonian captivity, that there was no hope for them. They would feel that way. And they would be in that situation... Because of their own darkness, their own heart. God was going to hand them over to death, to slavery, to suffering, to distress, to disaster, to depression, to oppression, to shame, to grief, to bondage, for war. The future of Israel looked like there was no hope. And if God left them in that state, He would have been right and just. 
but he didn't. Now, you may say, Pastor, that's all great and wonderful, but that judgment that you're speaking of was for Israel. But guys, I want you to know that everything we read about Israel is there for our own instruction. And that the condition of Israel's heart is only a mirror that reflects the condition of our own heart. Because I want you to know, if you haven't discovered it yet, apart from God's grace, our own hearts can become quite dark. Every single one of them. And the evil of our hearts attracts the wrath of God. Not a popular phrase these days, but it comes. It comes. You see, as Jonathan Edwards would say, we, we are like Spiders spinning our webs over the hot flame below. And at any moment, a flame could flicker and we would fall within that state and condition of eternal torment if it were not for God's grace. Now, what are they to do? Isaiah chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 present a gloomy picture of doom and destruction. But in chapter 9, <laughs> I might burst forth with a little dance, but I'm going to try not to. All right. In chapter 9, there's a shift in the tone. There is a mega shift in the tone. And even though the theme of judgment picks up in the chapters to proceed, and we really don't see the fullness of His grace until we get on past Isaiah chapter 35, we... This is a snippet of hope that is awesome right here. This is a snippet of hope that we cannot forget right here. There is this message. We go from the hopelessness of their situation to the hope of salvation and deliverance. The, 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 the prophet shifts his tone from the problem to the promise. And it is an awesome truth. Perhaps you this morning need to be reminded of that truth. It is a beautiful truth. Listen to the language of the text. I reference some of their dark problems by quoting to you, well, reading to you some verses from those first chapters of Isaiah. But these people are in, in darkness. Let me just remind you. I read it, but I want to remind you again what he says in chapter 9. Those, <laughs> there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness, wait, now they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've increased their joy, verse 9. They rejoice before you, verse 9. They, listen, the yoke and the burden, the yoke of his burden. You know what the yoke of his burden? That was the judgment that, was gonna, that came upon them. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. He has broken for them. 
has He done this thing that they rightly deserve? How has He removed from them the judgment that they should have, not for just 40 years, but for an eternity before a holy God? How has He done it? Where is the promise? And how has He accomplished it? (laughs) The Bible says in verse number 5, No, verse number 4, where he talks about the rod of his oppressor. He says he has broken it as on the day of Midian. Oh my, that is a pregnant phrase. You remember what happened on the day of Midian, right? That is a reference to when Gideon defeated the Midianites. Do you remember that story? From the book of Judges, Israel was facing 120,000 pagan Midianite armed men. Gideon was going to bring 22,000 Israelites, Hebrew people, against this threat. Now, they would have been wiped out, it looked like logically, with 22,000 men. Even though they were trained in war, it looked bleak. But God said, no, you're not using 22,000. If I let you use 22,000 and you defeat the Midianites, you'll sit back and boast saying, have I not saved us by my own hand? See, that's the human tendency. So, Midian sends 10,000, I think it was, home. Or he had 10,000 that he was going to send. And God said, nope, that's still too many. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take these men down to the brook. Let them them get some water. And those that lap the water with their tongue like a dog, those who do that, you take those men and those men and those men only do you go face this enemy that's coming against you. Well, there was only 300 men that did that. Here we have 300 men against 120,000 pagans. Gideon takes them. They divide themselves up into the, to three companies of 100. They come in from different sides against the Midianites. And all they were to do was to shout and break these jars of clay. And on that day, in a most unlikely way, God enabled 300 men by not raising a single finger, really, to defeat 120,000 Midianites. You see, every one of us are born in sin. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have no hope of heaven. You understand that within ourselves. We think we might can save ourselves if we do just a little religious thing here and there. Maybe God will smile on us. We think that as long as I don't compare my life to the drug addict or to the prostitute that we're okay. Not realizing that the gossip within your own heart is as wicked before a holy God. 
And we think we're okay. And we think we can do just a good, just, just enough to be okay with God. You'll never be okay with God within yourself. He's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so in a most unlikely way, on a certain day, verse 6, there was a child that was born and a son that was given. And the child that was born and the son that was given was born to go to a rugged Roman cross on Golgotha's hill to accomplish that which we would never be able to accomplish by paying the wrath for the sins of those who repent and turn and believe and trust in Christ alone. <laughs> and then giving you the perfect righteousness that you never had and never would positionally so that you're perfectly right before God. And then you get to spend the rest of your life struggling to work out the righteousness you are positionally into your practical daily life. Wow. You see... God had a great plan. The Lord had a plan that was in place before Adam and Eve ever messed up in the garden. The fall of man did not surprise God. I will not go this morning into the philosophical reasons why the fall had to be. I might mess up your lunch. But this was God's plan. To rescue his people. You see, the child of verse 6. That is, though you don't see the name Jesus. Jesus is the personal name. You see these descriptive names. Those descriptive names belong to the personal name. To Jesus who is the Christ. Now, I'm not just reading Jesus into verse 6. Out of Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9 is referenced in Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter before Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Let me just clarify that for you. In, in Matthew chapter number 4, we read these words beginning in verse 12. Now see if some of this sounds familiar to you. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a light. Those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from this time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the light that was shown. He is the child that was born that Isaiah referred to. He is the picture that we have. You see, your Old Testament bears witness to Christ. All of it, all of it, all of it points to Christ in some way. And 
Gideon defeated the Midianites to testify to Christ in his way. He is this child. He is this one. The essence of the incarnation, that what, what Christmas is really about, the essence of the incarnation, the, the, the mystery and the majesty and the mark of Messiah that we see in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, the essence of it is that He is a light. He is the light of the world. And whoever follows Him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, John's Gospel. That is awesome truth. And those of us that have been saved by Him cannot forget that or we lose hope in our hope-sucking world. We can't lose sight. We can't ever become too familiar with that. We can't ever become too familiar with the faith, with the fact that it is by grace that you have been saved. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of work, so that no man may boast. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. You see, the message of a babe lying in a manger. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That is the message of our Christ. That is the message of Him. That is why the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, not to all men, but unto men on whom God's favor rests. Don't ignore the language of Scripture. Wow. Let me close with letting you hear the message of Isaiah 9-6 through the language of the child that was born and the son that was given. Let me close by letting you hear again this in the words of Jesus. This is captured in John's Gospel, chapter number 3. You know it. In John 3... Beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Remember there was a Son that was given. Who gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light, light has come into the world. And, but People love darkness rather than the light. Their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works 
have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Church, I would encourage you to rejoice over those words that you know you've heard all your life. You cannot exhaust the gospel. Be encouraged by what Christ has accomplished. Be encouraged by what He has done for you. Something you could not do for yourself. And if there is anyone among us this morning, or if there's anyone that hears the sound of my voice on podcast, and you do not have this hope, then do not look to yourself to find it. Do not look within yourself to find the hope of heaven. Look outside of yourself and look to the one that hung on Calvary's cross. Because that is the hope of the gospel. That is the euangelion. That is the good news. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed.